I'm not gonna bullshit you, okay? I don't really give a good fuck what you know or don't know, but I'm gonna torture you anyway. All you can do is pray for a quick death, which you ain't gonna get. Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we are continuing our exploration of Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host in uh, San Diego, California. And, of course, we couldn't jump back into Reservoir Dogs without our very special guest, producer and screenwriter David McKenna. Welcome back to The Cinephiles. What <laughs> Taking us right back to the nineties. Good to be with you guys. This is awesome. Um, and I think we're just going to jump right back into it. Where we left off, we had Steve Buscemi on the ground. We had uh, Mr. White pointing his gun at down at him. They were arguing, and as they're arguing, the camera had pulled back and back, finally revealing, as cool as can be, in his sunglasses and drinking a soda. Michael Madsen's Mr. Blonde, who says, You kids shouldn't play so rough. Somebody's going to start crying. <laughs> How do you feel about Michael Madsen in this role? This is one of the greatest entrances for any character ever, and also one of the greatest performances. By This is almost the Citizen Kane of performances. And by, by that I mean Michael Madsen essentially never matched this performance again. And it was such an incredible introduction into Michael Madsen, the actor, that it's almost heartbreaking that he didn't quite ever match this again with his career. And he's still obviously still around uh, in the same way with Wells. Wells never quite matched the Citizen Kane uh, debut. So to me, it almost feels that way when you watch this picture. I mean, if you could freeze this in time, this is the greatest performance of Michael Madsen's career. Yeah, and it's so key for all you want to be screenwriters out there, John, you just touched on it is that introductory line, you know, right when we meet you, you know, it just says so much about the character right there. You kids shouldn't play so tough. Somebody's going to start crying. I mean, uh, it, it just shows how ambivalent he is to violence right there. <laughs> He's just been yeah, sitting there really watching him kick him and all of it. And it's going to, it's just going to get worse. You know, everything that he is about is violence. I think his performance is amazing. And I've never met Michael Madsen. I don't know Michael Madsen. And so what I'm about to say is just based on pure conjecture. But there's some times where an actor has a particular odd rhythm or an, uh, just a, a, a different, uh, they're in a different time zone. And there's every once in a while, their oddness syncs up perfectly with a role. And you get a performance like this. And the other one, and it's totally not a comparison, but it's the other one that pops in my brain is Crispin Glover, who is an odd person. Yeah. And his oddness syncs up perfectly in Back to the Future. And then it doesn't ever sync up exactly right again. And that's kind of how I feel about Michael Madsen. It's not that he's not good in lots of stuff. He totally is. But this is like the role he was built to play. You well, know? you brought up Crispin Glover, and I got to just say – River's Edge, guys. If you haven't seen River's oh, Edge, yeah. people, yeah. I mean, come on. One of the greatest. 
Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen that in forever, but yeah. I had absolutely. that when I was in college. I had that on a college loop. Yet me and my roommate just had it on a loop, just playing constantly throughout the day. <laughs> so I don't have all the details, but I have a little bit of information about his audition process, which <laughs> oh, is yeah. so, as both of you know, when you're doing auditions, you send out sides. And so the actor prepared this scene to bring it in. They have specific scenes that they want for Mr. Blonde, but it sounds like they sent out the whole script. So Michael Madsen shows up to the audition and they say, okay, let's, we want to start with this scene. I don't know what it was. And Michael Madsen says, yeah, I don't, I don't want to read that scene. And he just picked, they're like, what do you mean? He's like, I'm not going to do that scene. And they go, but that's the audition scene. He's like, no, I want to do this scene in the script. And he, he picked different scenes to do. And that is what he did for the audition. Wow. Right. See, that, that is, that's what gets you the part though. You know, when you because it's perfectly in character with who he is, he's demanding on what he wants. Right. And it's so much of that stuff on auditions is hugely important. Um, I remember when Beverly, I'll never forget when Beverly D'Angelo came in to read for American History X to play the mom. I mean, she was just so looking shabby and just looked the part of the mom and we just looked at each other right away and boom, we knew. I mean, so much of uh, the attitude on auditions is what gets you the part. Wow. Yep. So <laughs> Mr. White, and Mr. Pink have been caught in this very awkward moment and they both kind of stand up surprised. And I love the way Tarantino shot this because they're in the wide shot. Mm -hmm. But when we cut to Mr. Blonde, he's in this very tight close up. <laughs> What happened to you? Figured you were dead. And he doesn't speak for a long time as they're talking to him. Hey, you okay? And their their energy is high, and his energy is as calm as can be. Yeah. See. We didn't know what happened to you and Blue. That's what we were wondering about. What? Come on, man. And and now Kaitel is pissed off because this guy went nuts in the jewelry store. He says, "You better start talking, asshole." Because we got shit we need to talk about. We're already freaked out. We need you acting freaky like we need a fucking bag on our hip. This is a great male psychological moment. And by that I mean, these two guys are caught in an awkward position, as you said, Steve. Guns on each other. Kaitel has just finished kicking this dude around the floor. And I'll be honest with you, Mr. Pink got the jump on him. He had the gun out first. He could have shot him first. So we've got that interaction going on in the great shot. Then you see Mr. Blonde, who is cool as a cucumber. There's nothing dudes hate more than losing their losing their shit in front of a guy who's acting cool. Because it only makes them look <laughs> even more like they're out of control. Yep. And dudes hate most dudes, especially I imagine these guys, guys who do these kinds of jobs, hate looking like they're out of control. Ushemi tries to retain some level of um equalness with him by reverting back to playground stuff, which is when the bully comes around and he catches you, you just kind of kiss the bully's ass. Hey, uh, we're wondering where you at. You know, you're just doing that. So the bully doesn't turn his anger on you. Cause remember they just saw this guy shooting people indiscriminately at the jewelry store. Kaitel initially kind of dials into that. And then is like, fuck this man, where the fuck have you been? Just calling him out to cause he wants to reclaim his alpha dog status in front of this dude after he's looked like a guy who's out of control in front of him. So great psychological moment going on. And, and we spoke about this, Steve, I think in our conversation about Tarantino, the way he writes men, these kinds of men, it's, it's like he knows them from bottom 
from top to bottom. And you can see it in these little moments and exchanges. And just as far as one character thing is, is he kills a bunch of people in a jewelry place and he stops off to get a burger and fries and, and a shake. Great point. <laughs> well, and this is the thing because because you would think that Harvey Keitel is going to be the alpha in the group. You know what I mean? Right, from, right. Just not from knowing anything, just in the movie. And we did see him, you know, take the address book away from Joe, and we've seen him, you know, be the guy in control when we have uh, Mr. Orange wounded. We see him settle down, Mr. Pink. So he seems alpha-ish, and when he tries to exert his alphaness on Mr. Blonde, it just isn't going anywhere. Spacious <laughs> ain't security anymore. We're leaving. You should go with us. Nobody's going anywhere. Piss on this fucking turd. We're out of here. Don't take another step, Mr. White. Is the, Does he put any aggression into the way he says that line? No, it's like uh, David said. He's so comfortable with violence that to him it's like, okay, we got to do this now. Like, it's it's not... Anything that he is upset about, unsettled by, and he knows that he is, in essence, an extension of Joe. So because of his relationship with no one else, which no one else knows, his relationship with Joe. So in that moment, he's like, you're not going anywhere. No one's going anywhere. Don't take another step. I'll take you out. Joe's not going to give a shit because I killed you because of the because you were trying to mess up what we had already set up. So it's not going to be a big deal to me if I have to do this. And Mr. White draws his gun. Fuck you, maniac! It's your fucking fault we're in this trouble. And I love, a gun's just been pulled on Mr. Blonde. And without any reaction to that, he turns to Mr. Pink and says, What's this guy's problem? (laughs) (laughs) What's my problem? Yeah, I got a fucking problem. I got a big fucking problem. With any trick you have, a madman almost gets me shot. And Mr. Blonde just takes a sip of his soda. If I know what kind of guy you were, I never would have agreed to work with you. Mr. Blonde replies, Are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Or are you going to bite? <laughs> oh, God. The greatest thing here is Buscemi's reaction. <laughs> yeah, you're right. He's like, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> it, it, here's, here's a question for you. In, in the criminal circles, in the underworld, yeah. How much respect does Mr. White generally get? Everything. Mm, I would imagine so. Yeah. Yeah. No one talks to Mr. White like this. <laughs> Ever. Yeah. What was that? I'm sorry, I didn't catch it. Would you repeat it? <laughs> Are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Mr. Blonde tosses away his soda cup and advances on him. Are you gonna bite? Oh Christ! Hey, look, you two assholes, calm the fuck down. Hey, come on, wake up! What are we on a playground here, huh? <laughs> it's again, it's great because Kaitel initially is like, "Where the fuck have you been?" Blah blah, blah. and he goes, "Piss on this turd." Blah, blah blah, and it isn't until Mister Blonde crosses that line with Mister White, right? Because Mister White initially is just like yelling at him to try to break him to try to reassert dominance, and it's a futile attempt. But once Mr. White cross, uh, crosses, or once Mr. Blonde crosses Mr. White by saying, you're going to bark all day, little dog, or you're going to bite, that's an attack on his manhood. And yeah. that's, if you notice, Kaitel immediately goes into the fucking quiet mode as well, just like Mr. Blonde was at. 
And if you know dudes, once they go into the quiet mode, that's when you got to be scared. It's not the guys who are screaming. It's when they go into quiet mode. It's like, it's fucking on. And so it's great that you have that. Both of them are like, all right, this is going to fucking happen. Then Buscemi realizes it. His, that's why he doesn't hide under the ramp uh, like he does at the end of the movie this time. He knows these dudes are good, could kill me on accident. I got to stop these guys right now. <laughs> well, and it's I think it's really interesting that Keitel, that Mr. White is offended that Mr. Pink isn't backing him up with the, the psychopath. Like you were complaining about him before. You said yourself you thought about taking him out. Fucking said that. Yeah, I did, okay? I did. But that was then. Right now, this guy is the only one I completely trust. <laughs> it's fucking homicidal to be working with the cops. <laughs> That's right. I mean, he's the only guy that is not a cop, possibly. Right. You taking his side? No! Fuck sides, man! What we need here is a little solidarity. Somebody's sticking a red hot poker up our ass. I want to know whose name's on the handle. Yes, that's maybe top five favorite lines for me from the movie. Just wow, the description of that. And I got to I'm going to say it again. Who is the biggest, most professional? It's Mr. Pink. Mr. Pink. Yes. Mr. Pink's got his eyes on the prize. No doubt. Look, I know I'm no piece of shit. I'm pretty sure you're okay. And I'm fucking positive you're on the level. <laughs> so let's try and figure out who the bad guy is. All right. And then as the tension drops, this, oh, uber violent man who we said was is ready to kill at any moment says wow <laughs> that was really exciting <laughs> i bet you're a big lee marvin fan aren't you totally disarms him with that <laughs> totally disarms him it's i think on some level mm-hmm. he liked mr white for acting the way that he did you know what i mean yeah fuck yeah guys like that love dudes who step to them they love it because it's like all right let's have some fun and i love uh blonde's character as far as you know up to this point there's been a lot of verboten dialogue Mm. and with him it's just bark little doggy your kids are gonna get hurt you know i mean just these little clever one-liners you know it's perfect for madsen my heart's beating so fast, I'm about to have a heart attack. <laughs> all we heard about this guy, he didn't speak very much at the diner, and all we heard about him is he's a fucking psychopath who was just killing people. And so the fact that now we see him it, with this icy calm in this very odd manner is, I think, completely unexpected in terms of it's completely what we wouldn't expect. And then as you see it, it, it becomes, oh, no, no, this makes a lot of sense, yeah. you know? And he says, Calmly. I got something outside that uh, I'd like to show you guys, so follow me. Follow you? Where? To my car. And he takes them outside, and we walk up to the car, and we have that shot looking up through the trunk as it opens up, and we see their three faces look down (laughs) and react to what's in the trunk, which is Officer Marvin Nash by, this is Kirk Baltz is the actor. Yeah, if I'm not wrong, I think this is one of Tarantino's friends. And this oh, is, yeah? I think this is how he got the part. Um, kind of like with El Mariachi, Rob Rodriguez, the main guy, yeah. was one of his friends. So I think this is how he got the part uh, in this role. And I think he has a part in like the next film or Jackie Brown, but that's pretty much it with him. And this is a trademark uh, Tarantino shot. You know, remember he did it mm. in Pulp Fiction. He does it here. You know, the opening right. of the trunk. There's something, there's something that... He likes about that, which is which is cool, which is great among filmmakers. I think he is incredible in this movie. And it's so funny because people don't 
talk about him as part of the ensemble, mm-hmm. you know, because he's not one of the criminals and he doesn't have that career. But man, he's good in this film. Mm-hmm. And he shows up on the set. The car, by the way, is Michael Madsen's car. <laughs> Why not? That is what he was driving. <laughs> And Kirk goes up to him like the day of the shoot and says, Hey man, I would you do me a favor? And he goes, Michael goes, Yeah, what do you what do you want? He goes, I want to get in the trunk. Will you let me get in the trunk and maybe drive like, you know, a half a block just so I can feel what it's like to be in the trunk? God. Michael goes, Absolutely, man. <laughs> and he gets him in the trunk, he closes the door, he drives a half a block. Here's a on the on the trunk saying, I want to get out. Michael Batson didn't stop driving. He decided just to go for a drive and he went, he found an alleyway that had lots of potholes. So there's a lots of bouncing and then there's more banging on the inside of the trunk and he just keeps driving. And as he's driving, he sees a Taco Bell and he goes, I could go for some Taco Bell. And so he goes and picks up some tacos, finally drives back to set his description of when he opened up the trunk. I mean, a Kirk Balls was pissed but he says that he was sweaty and weeping when he let him out of the trunk where did Kirk you denies this, that he was crying steve where'd you see this this is on the disc this is a story yeah. that both of the it's definitely true that he did get in michael madsen's trunk and michael madsen did go to taco bell because both of them said that be careful the what only, you ask for baby <laughs> the only thing they disagree on is whether or not he was crying when he got out of the trunk <laughs> I I love you know fucking actors man especially young actors <laughs> yeah. we're all so goddamn stupid caught up in our method bullshit yeah um so I mean this is the price you pay for that nonsense is <laughs> is you know driving around the do- and because you, you put your hands first of all because you're 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 a starting out actor like Kirk right Mattson at least had some credits smaller credits yeah. he had some credits so this guy knows he's gonna fuck with him because a they're young dudes and dudes love to fuck with other dudes especially when they're young. And the fact that he's a method guy, I'm going to tell you, I don't think Michael Madsen's a method guy by no. any stretch of the imagination. So I'm sure for him, this brought him an immeasurable amount of devilish glee to throw a method dude into the back of a car and drive him around for all the fuck with him. So genius. But it also was smart in a way of establishing dominance so that they could use that both of them in a way uh, for the scene. Of course, when they when he's strapped to the chair and he cuts his ear off. So indirectly, it was a smart decision by Kirk to do that. Yeah, well, and it's, but it's also in Madsen's character, Mr. Blonde's character. That's what Mr. Blonde would do, right, you know? Right. Yeah, it's funny. I agree with you. I doubt that Madsen's a method guy. But in a weird way, this is a method choice, you know? Yes, 100%. 100%. <laughs> um, and all of them, big, huge smiles on their faces when they see this cop tied up in the back of the trunk. Maybe a boy in blue here can answer some of these questions about this rat business you've been talking about. And I think despite all the anger they had toward Michael Madsen because of the sh- shooting, they're kind of impressed with him and his choices. You're a piece of work, my friend. It says Mr. Blonde, and now we have another back-in-time moment. Again, not a flashback. This was shot in an office building in Eagle Rock, fairly close to the location. Um, And it starts off with, you know, Joe on the phone talking to someone, and then we hear that Vic Vega is there, and in comes Michael Madsen. So now we know that this is Vic Vega, is his real name. How does freedom fail, huh? It's a change. Ain't that the sad truth? Those are great lines. Yep. And over a drink, we hear about his parole officer who's named Seymour Stagnetti, who's an asshole and that he's having trouble with him. (laughs) And we also hear him say in a very sincere way, I want you to know I appreciate all the packages you sent me on the inside. What the hell was I supposed to do? Forget about you. 
I just want you to know that it meant a lot to me. Uh, it's what's so interesting is we hear about him as a psychopath. Then we see him in this scene and we see him with the tied up cop. And then we see the relationship behind what's going on. It's really interesting the way Tarantino sets this all up. Yeah. You know that Madsen, you know that Mr. Blonde kept his mouth shut for Joe. I mean, that is a given. He did not roll. And uh, that's probably one of the reasons why, um, which we find out pretty soon, uh, he gets recommended for uh, to be the, you know, the, the one man out. And in comes nice guy, Eddie. And their relationship comes real clear, real quick, which is they're giving each other shit. I love that, that uh, Mr. Blonde, that Vic is talking about what makes up this whole thing about what his dad was saying about him before he came in. I walk in the door. He's like, Vic, Vic, I'm so glad somebody's finally here who knows what's going on. My son, Eddie's a fuck up. He's ruining the business. I mean, I love the guy, but, you know, he's flushing everything down the toilet. I mean, that's what you said, right, Joe? I mean, tell him yourself. And I love that Joe plays along with it, you know? <laughs> well, Eddie, I hate for you to hear it like this, but, no, well, they come in and ask me how business was. And then they wrestle. As these guys are bound to do, right? I mean, this is what the two dudes who are like, especially one coming out of prison, one who escaped prison, and they're obviously going to go at each other a little bit to see who's who's got the dominant thing. Me and my cousin used to do this all the time whenever we hung out and saw each other after a while. It was, let's wrestle down in the fucking basement. It's stupid. It's so stupid, but you do it. You do it. But there's, but the thing is, is you just don't see this stuff on film. You're, you're you, know, you, right. just don't, yes. you just don't see the familiarity with the characters. I mean, this is what makes Tarantino exceptional is two grown men wrestling in the old man's office, just having fun, you know, fucking off. You know, it's just the brilliance of Tarantino. It's the little stuff that makes movies great and it shows so much about their relationship. It, it just answers so many questions and it's just so smart. He's such a great writer, such a great director, and it's little stuff like this that makes him revered. So I think the wrestling is great and I think I agree with everything you guys said. I also think it goes on a little long. That's my, my what? Just, what? Just the, all the wrestling and the joking for me at this <laughs> point in the movie is going on a little long. You're, you're crazy. All right, fine. <laughs> that is my opinion. It's not like an MMA match, Steve. I mean, Jesus, I know. it goes on for a few seconds. It's not that long. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable. And I do think the it's a little way. I imagine it was probably improv for a bit, too, because I, a bunch I of it totally is. Oh, yeah. think it's improv. It is. Lawrence looks uncomfortable sitting in that yeah. chair. He's like, oh, fuck, man. Do I stop well, this? <laughs> well, and I this is where, I mean, I, I wish Sally Menke was still alive for a lot of reasons. Mm. But my guess is they didn't have much coverage. And so it wasn't, oh, it's hard to cut in. In the middle of a wrestling improv thing, if you get and if you got no coverage, really hard to cut it down. Right. You know. Uh, but finally he, he get, you know, Joe gets them to stop. And we immediately get back to this idea of the PO. And what's so great, and this is why I totally agree with you guys, and I love the wrestling, is you go from the goofy, you know, these are two boys moment to seeing that, in fact, nice guy Eddie is really competent. Yes. Is that what we hear is that the big problem is that. Uh, is that Vic needs a job. He needs a regular job. But we can get you a lot of legitimate jobs. I'll get you down to Long Beach as a dock worker. I don't want to lift no fucking crates, Eddie. Vic, 
You don't got to lift shit. You don't even work there. But as far as the records are concerned, you do. And they obviously have a system, which is they set them up with a job down at the dock and they someone's going to clock them in and clock them out. And that if the PO shows up unexpectedly, that was the day he was doing delivery. They've got it all figured out. And at the end of the week, you get a nice paycheck. Dock workers do very well. And then the other question comes up of when can he come back to work for Joe? Yeah, like do, the do real some work. real work. I got an idea. I just, just hear me out. I know you don't like using the boys on these jobs. But Vic here, I mean, he's only been nothing but good luck for us. And the guy's a fucking rabbit's foot for crying out loud. Man, that is going to change. <laughs> that is not that's not what's going to happen. Well, I don't understand the logic either because he just got caught and went to jail for 4 years. So what's this good luck? Do you mean because he didn't say your name? I you know, cuz he got caught. So how good luck can he actually be? But well. I'd like to have him in. You know he can handle himself and you damn sure know you can trust him. Rick. How would you feel about pulling a job with about five other guys? And he says I'd feel great about it. And then that big smile. Go to black and we hear more of Stephen Wright. And then we see the car, a car go by with a balloon kind of stuck to it. And I, I'm just assuming that balloon was an accident. I can't imagine that was a thing that they did on purpose on a movie like this. And we have nice guy, Eddie on the phone. And I think Chris Penn does a great job in this scene. Hey, Dob, we got a major situation here. I know you know that. I got to talk to daddy and find out what he wants done. The choice to have him call Joe daddy <laughs> is so brilliant. It is. It is. Um, my, uh, my son calls me daddy sometimes as a total joke, you know, and it just makes all the other kids and my wife just creep out, you know, <laughs> he's 21 <laughs> daddy, you know, <laughs> daddy, hilarious. I need some money. <laughs> And um, it's creepy. And it's creepy. It is. It is particularly looking at Lawrence Tierney. You know, yeah. <laughs> it does not seem like a daddy. Um, and we intercut this conversation on the phone in the car, which, by the way, this is 92. This is early for phones in the car. Yeah. Um, and we intercut that with them bringing the cop into the warehouse and starting to beat him up. And then we cut back to nice guy, Eddie. And I love that he's on the verge of tears. I don't know if anybody's got the loot. I don't know who's dead. I don't know who's alive. I don't know who's caught. I don't know who's not. That's great. I think he does a great job. Oh, Chris Penn. I mean, can you imagine anybody else in that role? I mean, Chris Penn just nails it. Yeah. yeah. Well, what do I tell these guys about Daddy? Okay, that's what I'll tell them. Who do you think? Who, does he, who is he talking to? Yeah, no kidding. Do you think he's talking to the guy who walked Vic Vega in? The kid who walked Vic Vega in at the beginning of that scene? With the wrestling? Or is he talking to his other brother? Who is he talking to? Because he calls him daddy. So clearly, you know. Well, he's it's not like, calling him daddy. He's no, no, he calls. I know he's calling. I know that. I know that. But I'm saying yeah. the fact that he uses daddy to reference mm. uh, Lawrence Tierney, it makes me think this guy on the phone has some kind of familial connection with Chris Penn. Absolutely. Could this be the other brother? Could this be mm. another brother or something like that? Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, he got the Vic and Vincent Vega. Why wouldn't nice guy Eddie have a, a brother? Yeah. Not so nice, Eddie. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I it, it almost sounds like he says doc at the beginning of the scene. Mm. Oh, maybe. But well, maybe I'm not somebody just below Lawrence Tierney, but old yeah. maybe it's his uncle. It's yeah. possible. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. So we're back in with the cop, and Eddie comes in, 
And at this point, Michael Madsen is sitting up on the hearse, which is wrapped in plastic. And would you like to know why uh, this was not something that Tarantino directed him? This is something that Michael Madsen just decided he wanted to sit there. And when asked why, he said, because I'm lazy. (laughs) (laughs) And Mr. Pink is saying we were set up. Bullshit. Hey, fuck you, man. You weren't there. We weren't. I'm telling you, the cops had that store staked out. Okay, Mr. Fucking Detective. You're so fucking smart. Huh? Who did it? What the hell do you think we've been asking each other? And I love, too, that Mr. White's guard is up. You fucking assholes turn a jewelry store into Don't a you call me an asshole. Show. You fucking idiot. Turn a fucking jewelry store Don't into a Don't you call me a show. fucking idiot. you wonder why the fucking cops show up? Like, again, Mr. White doesn't like to be challenged, mm. you know? What are you going to do about him? Jesus Christ, give me a fucking chance to breathe. I got a few questions of my own here. You ain't dying, he is. And as they're talking about it, and they know what happened to Mr. Brown, they know he's dead, but they don't know what happened to Mr. Blue. And and the energy is really high, and the dialogue is going really fast. And then, with that slow pace, we hear... Either he's alive or he's dead, or the cops got him, or they don't. That's, that's what I mean by the verboten. Uh, everything is so, everybody is so witty and so quick and the dialogue is so snappy. And then you get Mr. Blonde, who's a complete, yep. you know, uh, opposite of all these guys. I remember when we did, because we did Cuckoo's Nest recently. And one of the things Milos Foreman wanted to cast for was that everybody's look and everybody's voice was instantly recognizable and their everybody's rhythm and energy was totally different with all those yep. patients. Yeah. And that's totally true in this scene. There's Mr. Pink is nothing like Mr. White is nothing like Mr. Blonde is nothing like nice guy, Eddie. They're mm-hmm. all different. And now we kind of start to come up with a plan. He goes, first, we got to get rid of those cars outside. It looks like Sam's hot car lot out there. Blondie, stay here and babysit them too. White and pink, take a car each. I'll follow you. You ditch him. Pick up the stones. And so nice guy, Eddie, even though he was crying in the previous scene, he's got it together enough to come up with some orders. Mm. And he says he's going to arrange a doctor while he's while they go out and move the cars. And White doesn't like the plan. You can't leave these guys there with him. Why not? Because he's a fucking psycho. And if you think Joe's pissed off, that ain't nothing compared to how pissed off I am at him for putting me in the same room as that bastard. <laughs> And again, Blonde doesn't rise to the, to the energy at all. He goes, you see what I've been putting up with, Eddie? <laughs> <laughs> While this scene is going on, the door to the warehouse blows open. Wasn't yeah. supposed to happen. It just was the wind. And Harvey Keitel's just in the scene and walks to the door and closes the door. And the scene just keeps going. I noticed so that cool. this time around a way that I hadn't before. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Quentin's like, fuck it, the scene's going to work. And Harvey made it work naturally. And it adds even more authenticity to the vibe that he wanted to have in this movie, which it, which essentially you're like almost a fly on the wall watching this all happen. So it's not going to be all clean and choreographed it's a play. and staged. Yeah. It's a play. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Something happened on the set. You just go with it. It's just also, with- this is this is a low-budget movie. Yeah. You don't have necessary you got everyone's being great in this take. You don't necessarily have the money to shoot another take. Yeah. yeah. You know, so you got to make sure that it works. He's the reason the joint turned into a shooting spree. And again, he tries to get Mr. What? Pink on his side. What are you a fucking silent partner? Tell him. And Pink, I love his response. He's like, "He went crazy in the store, but he seems all right now." 
Because <laughs> Mr. Pink wants to, he actually wants to get along with everybody. You know what I mean? Like he I doesn't want to. He's super afraid of Mr. Blonde. He's yes. Cross Mr. Blonde. But also, he he's the mo- he is out of the whole group. He's most concerned on finding out who the snitch is. Right. Yep. And he knows yes. it's not Mr. Blonde. Right. You know, yep. he knows it's not Blonde. He in it could be Eddie. It could be uh orange it could be uh um mr white you know but he knows it's not blonde well it could have been brown or blue too yeah yeah, yeah. Right. this is what he was doing and gestures like a gun bad 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 yeah bam 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 i told them not to touch the fucking alarm they did if they hadn't done what i told them not to do they'd still be alive all the little bits are great, which is that Mr. White applauds that explanation <laughs> and Mr. Blonde applauds back, you know, and does a bow and does a bow, yeah. which is great. <laughs> now, here's the news. Blondie, you stay here and take care of these two. White and Pink, you come with me because if Joe gets here and he sees all these cars parked outside, I swear to you, he's going to be just as mad at me as he is at you. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there, the Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. We're in this wide shot. We've got the cop in the foreground with his back to us. We have Mr. Blonde in the background on the right. It's a great shot. He takes off his jacket, and the I think the dread is just now building. And he says, Alone at last. And we see his POV moving forward on the cop. I told you I don't know anything about any fucking setup. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Nobody tells me shit. You can torture me all you want. And Mr. Blonde says, "Torture you? That's a good. That's a good idea. I like that one. Yeah." I think before you get to the dance, which obviously we're going to discuss in detail, yeah. before we get to it, the setup, the way that Mr. Blonde is talking, is absolutely fucking terrifying. It's chilling. Yeah, it's chilling. David or Steve, I don't know if you've ever been in a room with somebody who goes in the red zone, but it is super scary. I had it happen with a guy in the military one time, and I've never been more afraid for my life uh, than I was in a moment when he just went, like, it just, everything just left. And you're like, oh my God, what's going to happen? And so 
this scene always kind of reminds me of that, the feeling I had. Because when he says that, when he says, I'm parked in the red zone, he's almost like, I'm going to this, I'm going to enjoy this. The kind of oh, yeah. madness that someone has to possess to have that kind of a sick fascination to inflict such grotesque uh, harm on a human body. It's, it's, it's scary. Man. It's the unpredictability. Yes. And, you know, I, I mean, yeah. when I did American history X, we went to go interview a bunch of skinheads and <sighs> there was a guy who was about five, six, 120 pounds, but he had an M16 tattooed to the side of his head. And I used it in the movie and he was literally the scariest person I've ever seen in my life. I was terrified of the guy. And, yeah. uh, you know, so yeah, yeah, I mean, I've been there, you know, it, it is, you know, when you know you are in trouble um, and Tarantino captures it really well right here. And then there, there's this moment. It didn't bounce out at me as strongly into watching it this last time. Mm. But the cop says, Even your boss said there wasn't a setup. And it's funny because Mr. White pulled a gun on Mr. Blonde. Mm-hmm. Said he was a psychopath. Said also, and Mr. Blonde had no reaction to any of that at all. But when this cop says your boss, he goes, "My what? Your boss? Excuse me, pal. One thing I want to make clear to you: I don't have a boss." <laughs> Why did he have a reaction like this to this? Uh. Maybe it was insulting to him, like that he would think that someone that he sees lesser than him would dare to imply that he's a guy that can be controlled or can be uh, lorded over by a boss. Maybe there was just kind of that man thing coming out going like, oh, you're an idiot, man. I don't have no bosses. Fuck, you better fuck yeah. It's a prison mentality. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a prison mentality. You know, it's just you got to be badass. Mm. I also think it's that none of this is about business for Vic Vega. This is about family. This is his family. Not that's not his boss. Very know? true. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, man, this speech. Look, it. I'm not gonna bullshit you, okay? I don't really give a good fuck what you know or don't know, but I'm gonna torture you anyway, regardless. Not to get information. It's amusing. Uh, to me, to torture a cop. That is fucking terrifying. All you can do is pray for a quick death, which you ain't gonna get. And then we get the turn, because he says, You ever listen to K Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s? <laughs> yeah. And he turns it on, and the music starts. And this is Stuck in the Middle with You, Steeler Wheel. And I wanted to tell you of the epiphany that I had Whoa. as we get into this. Okay. So what? here's a story that Quentin Tarantino uh, tells is obviously this is a very, very famous scene. And so people will come to him to talk to him about the scene. And he says that every single person that has ever come to talk to him about the scene, when they describe it, they would always do a little bit of Michael Madsen's dance. Of course. That they can't, and and that they're smiling as they're describing it. And then he says, and yet all these people who want to talk to him about this scene are angry with him about the violence of it. And so when they get to the cutting off the ear, they, they're angry. And his response, Tarantino's response to this, which he says has happened a lot, is 
He goes, fuck you. You can't lie to me. You were enjoying it. And I know you were enjoying it because you were smiling when you did the dance. And I just suddenly went, as I heard him tell this story, mm. I just suddenly went, oh, this is so much of all his films, particularly the making us enjoy the revenge against the Mansons, against the hyper-violent nature of it. Yeah. That thing of you were enjoying it, motherfucker. I know you were. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to make you enjoy this horrible. That's like central to him, I think. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, uh, and um, people versus Larry Flint, Larry Flint, uh, Woody Harrelson says that in, I think, in one of the speeches, like, you guys hate me because I expose the things that you are interested in, but you don't want to admit you're interested in. Yeah. And the, the thing here is the exact same thing. Yeah, that's a great point, Stephen. I'm sure that's uh, absolutely what happens to him all the time. And, and, he, and he immediately points that out with anyone who does that kind of stuff is that's why you hate my shit or that's why you all get mad about this stuff because you do have an interest in this kind of violence. You are attracted to this in a way that shame that you feel shame about. And I put it out on the big screen for you to react to it in a public place. Um, so yeah, real genius of him to call people out on that. And I mean, is there, I know this is a crazy question, but is there any part of you that likes Mr. Blonde a little bit? I, I, I kind of like him and I know that's crazy, but I like him because of his humor and that's what Tarantino wins over so much is he's so funny in everything that he does. And I, I know it's sadistic, you know, but I, I'm almost kind of, I'm not rooting for him here, but I'm enjoying it. So, uh, we this has sort of come up before on 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 the podcast, and mm. I think we need to separate what it means to like someone in a movie and what it means to like them as a person. So <laughs> I don't like Hannibal Lecter as a person. I would not want to hang out with Hannibal Lecter, but I like him in that movie. And when Hannibal Lecter has his escape and wipes out the cops and then is going to go after the horrible psychiatrist, I am totally thrilled by it. Like. What, what so 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 I 100% agree. I, of course, I like Mr. Blonde. Mr. <laughs> Blonde, I uh, yeah, would I like him in real life? No, my god, the man's a psychopath, he's terrifying. <laughs> but in the context of the movie, absolutely, yeah, that's what I think David Chase did so well with The Sopranos. Um, because as soon as you started to like Tony too much, he'd make Tony do something pretty terrible and turn the mirror back on you. To be like, wow, you like this guy. Look at you. You like this guy. Now you have to be reminded of the terrible thing. So I like Mr. Blonde in terms of a character up until he cuts this guy's ear off. Then I'm done. Like, then I'm done with him and I want him dead. Yeah, but that's like, a great up, point. Right? Yeah. But up until that point, I'm going, fuck, I wish I could be that cool. Or yeah. fuck, I wish I looked like this guy. Because Matson's a good looking guy in this movie. And so there's so much about his demeanor that is um, – that is attractive. And even when he's pointing the gun to really fuck with him mentally or psychologically, you know, yeah, a little bit of you is like, God, you know, if someone ever fucked with me, I'd love to kind of have that little bit of, of moment of superiority over them to make them realize what they did. And so you, you, you gravitate to him, but that's why Tarantino is smart. He sucks you in and then he has him commit this pretty horrible act and be nonchalant about it as we're by talking into the ear as we're about to talk about. Steve, um, Steve, was this was this improvised or was this in the script? Yeah, good question. Uh, 
I mean, the dance. Michael, is, Mike, the so Michael, the, the dance is in the script, but mm. Michael came up with the dance. Okay. Yeah. The, and I think the song, I'm not 100% sure, but I think Tarantino already knew that. Yes, I know. No, I know for certain that Tarantino already knew what the song was going to be. And I will tell you how I knew that in a moment. Um, one thing. So Sally Menke, the editor, she's on the set. She says she never found this scary at all because <laughs> she was there watching him do it. And she thought Michael Madsen was so super cool. Like mm -hmm. this was just cool as could be the dance is fantastic it manages to be fun and terrifying at the same time and then he moves in sits basically on top of the cop and as he pulls that and he's got a knife out by the way and as he starts to do something with the knife the camera pulls off of him and we hear the screams but we do not see him actually cut the ear so smart by Tarantino. So that's smart. not in the budget. Well, <laughs> and so, so, and people, there are people who would, who say, man, the scare, you know, they asked, what was the most violent thing you ever saw in a movie? And they go watching him, Mr. Blonde cut the ear off in uh reservoir dogs because they remember seeing it, mm -hmm. even though they never did. Right. Uh, I could, I could tout my own scene there, fellas in American mm -hmm. history X. The curb stop. <laughs> curb stop. Yeah. yeah. Brother, let me tell you something. Because uh, I don't think I said this last time. Where, that scene haunted me for years. I mean, years, dude. Like, it was so brutal. I think that scene and this ear cutting scene are the two top two scenes for me in terms of violence in a movie where I was like, it's so realistic that it unsettled the shit out of me for a while. Yeah. So, congratulations to you guys who, for making that scene work. So, many people would walk out at this scene like if you're going to walk out of this movie this is the scene to do it apparently it was playing at a festival in spain and wes craven and rick baker walked out of this <laughs> this is when they walked out and later rick baker he told tarantino he's like no no it's a compliment that's a compliment <laughs> you got, it's just amazing to be like you got wes craven to, to walk out <laughs> wow and then we come back after the screaming and he's holding the ear, the fact that he talks to the ear, that is some sick, horrible, awful stuff. I love it. Can you hear me? And I have a listener question. Ooh, let's do it. He says, uh, this is from Anthony Palms, who says, hi, John and Steve. Looking forward to this month of Tarantino. Uh, he's bummed that we're not doing Jackie Brown. And he says, if it turned out that Tarantino chose to show his audience the severing of the cop's ear, rather than moving the camera away so you just hear the act, are we still talking about Tarantino all these years later? Oh, it's a good question. He, here's my response. He, I think it would have gone too far. And I think him showing that, you would have had to move up um, Mr. Orange shooting him. I think it's, if we had watched him cut that ear, it becomes then, what do you call that? Like porn? Like it becomes like violence yeah. porn, like what they accuse Gibson of sometimes. It would become that. And I think you have to have Orange shoot him as soon as he finishes the act or as he's doing the act. So I think it's good that he moved the camera away. But yeah, it would have been, I think it's a different movie at that point. But I don't well, know you if can't, we, you can't I think we'd it. still be I mean, talking about it's it. It's a $1.6 million movie. Yeah. And, um, you know, they didn't show the robbery, you know, Good so, point. you know, so, I mean, there's lots of things that are 
perfectly led up to the imagination. I think this is one of the best choices in the movie. I think it's a brilliant directorial choice. And I think the idea that making a different choice would have have us not talking about Tarantino. It's, it's ridiculous because there's so much great stuff in this movie. And so I go like, if you would stay, if you would show cutting off the air, let's say it reduced the quality of this film by 5%, which is a lot for one choice to do that. But let's just say it did. This is still a movie everyone would be talking about. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, and he'd still get another gig and he'd still make Pulp Fiction. So, and I will tell you now why I know that they plan the dancing out because the actor playing the cop finishes this day of shooting, gets in his car to drive home, turns on the radio and what song was playing, but stuck in the middle with you (laughs) and freaked him the fuck out. (laughs) So that's how I know that they were playing that song on the set. And that's what he was dancing to. It had to all be part of the plan. Wow. Wow. Hilarious. So, uh, and then Mr. Blonde goes, Calmly. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. And I absolutely love what happens next, which is he walks away. We're all in one shot. He walks to the door. He goes out the door. The camera follows him. And as he does this, the sound shifts from the music and the warehouse sounds out into the neighborhood sound. Yeah. And this is one of Tarantino's favorite moments in the whole movie because it's all about how close they are to just our normal world. That's what you feel. And he and Sally Menke had a, spent a lot of time with sound design coming up with what is the world. And you hear street sounds. You hear a kid laughing. You hear, uh, you know, a garbage truck. You hear all these just like this is a neighborhood in Los Angeles kind of sounds. Yeah. So smart. And he goes to the trunk of the car, pulls out a big can of gasoline. And then the camera follows him as he walks back in. And as he walks back in, the sound of that music comes back up again. And he dances towards the cop. And again, if I thought it was terrifying before he cut the ear off, now the guy who I've seen do horrible things has a can of gasoline and is going for it and throws the gas in his face. And the cop is begging for his life. Stop! What? Stop. What's the matter? Don't do this! Please! Does that, that burn a Stop. little bit? And then he says... Please. Look, I got a little kid going now. Please. So in rehearsal... As they're doing this, Quentin goes up to Kirk Baltz and says, I want you to come up with an improv line. Try to find something that's going to get to Michael. And he knows that Michael Madsen just had a kid. Mm. And so he comes up with this line and Michael stopped the rehearsal. Wow. Like he was like, I don't like him and goes to Quentin and says, I really don't like that. I, you know, I have a new baby. I really don't like him bringing that up. And Quentin went, well, I do like it. And they kept it in. Yeah. You know what? Cause you put this motherfucker in the trunk of a car and drove him around. <laughs> now here's your payment, bitch. Don't get sensitive now, son. Yeah. I think that's great. What's his reaction in the movie, Steve? I don't remember. He has a reaction, but I, I yeah, I don't know exactly what it is. Let uh, me ask you a Steve Morris question, David, as well. Is he telling the truth? No, no. Is the cop telling so. the truth? I don't think so. I don't think he has a kid. Okay, yeah. By the way, to be clear, and we'll get to more of it later. This cop is a fucking hero. I mean, this. Yeah. It, I mean, it's amazing what he does in the scene. Yeah. Um, and Michael pulls out him after dousing this cop with fire. He pulls out 
out of match. He says, y'all done? Have some fire. And right at the moment that we think, oh, my God, he's going to burn this cop alive, out of nowhere, yeah. bullets come and hit him. It is so shocking. I mean, I can't. The first time I saw it, it was like, holy shit. And we cut to there is Mr. Orange, who we've essentially forgotten about in right. this movie with the gun. Yeah. And I love the shot, too, because the camera comes around the back of Orange as he ejects the clip. You know, he still fires after he's empty mm -hmm. and ejects the clip. And just as the camera comes around, we see Mr. Blonde fall. So great. Oh, yeah, totally. I remember that. And you hear the crumple. Doo -doo -doo. Great sound design there as well. Also, the shot of him. You see the influence of the Asian um, oh, yeah. action movies from that time with the way him panning the camera around. And uh, uh, Mr. Orange is in the perfect position shooting with true composure. There's no uh, struggling. He's completely laser focused in shooting Mr. Blonde. And it's but perfect. he's just pasty white because of all yes. the blood he's yeah. lost. Yeah. <laughs> which looks like it's about 27 gallons. Um, <laughs> by the way, they had to do lots of experiments with blood to try to figure out what the right mixture was. And and in particular, the weird problem was they had to have a guy laying in this blood throughout all of these scenes. I mean, John, have you had a, a, a been in a show where you had to just be not move for a long period of time in a play or something? Oh, sure. I mean, well, in a film, I mean, doing Wind Talkers, when we did Wind Talkers, sitting in that valley cold as fuck at 1 a.m. with our pon our military ponchos on and the the clothes we had to wear to play those soldiers from world war ii i mean for hours on end sometimes in between takes it was horrific man yeah well tim roth just had to lay in this pool of blood and he couldn't get up because it would mess up the continuity of the blood hmm. and over time under hot lights the blood became sticky and solidified and then he would have to tear himself off the bloody mm. floor at the end of the day it was it sounds rough you know and uh before we get into the next part of the scene i have another question from one of our patrons paul sevilla who says hi guys i got another reservoir dogs question for you let's talk about the vega brothers vic and vincent mm. do you agree that vic is more evil than vincent or are they just evil in different ways? How come Vincent seems like a more sympathetic character than Vic, even though they're both ruthless criminals? And of course, Vincent Vega is John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, Vic is worse because Vic is a psychopath and doesn't question the world at all. Whereas Vincent is like experiencing the world, right? He goes to Amsterdam and he has Royale with cheese. You know, he's talking about it with such joy. There's almost a childishness in the way he approaches it. And when his partner is breaking up with him, he's almost heartbroken. Do you know what I'm saying? He's like, why are you doing this stupid? Stay with me. Don't go walk in the earth. Stay with me, right? He's making fun of him. And then when the situation with the, uh, when he call, with uh, the, when he gets shot by Bruce Willis there, he is reading a book that Vic Vega would never go near while he's in the <laughs> toilet. So Vincent is the much more thoughtful guy who and dumber, I would think, who kind of stumbled into this because Vic probably walked him into it, this life of crime. But Vic is certainly the worse of the two. Yeah. Vincent's not psycho. No. Yeah. For me, violence for Vincent is a job. Right. Right. For Vic, it is clearly, based on the scene we just watched, a pleasure. Also, there's a way no way. Of life. 
Vic yeah. Baker goes to Jackrabbit Slims with Mia Wallace. That turns way more nastier than it did with Vincent. That's the difference between the two. I think Vincent is more redeemable. Well, wait. So what happens with Mia Wallace? With I think he rapes her. You want my honest truth? I think Vic absolutely takes her. Absolutely not. I couldn't disagree more. Okay. Vic is all about loyalty. Like Vic, Vic would never betray the boss. Okay. That's what I think. I agree with um, Steve, John. Sorry. No, no, please. We all have our opinions. <laughs> so no one's his boss, Steve. He told you that in the movie. That's a fair. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say boss. <laughs> Please don't torture me. Um, no, but I think, I think, but you make an excellent point. The loyalty thing. I hadn't factored that in with, with, he wouldn't, but I think it would have been a less sweeter night, I guess, than Vincent had with Mia. Cause there was like real attraction between those two. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so the cop looks over at orange and I love that he's trying to like lift himself on his gun, you know, and falls. <sighs> Hey, what's your name? Marvin. Marvin what? Marvin Nash. Choice of Marvin is such a interesting choice of names, I think. Listen to me, Marvin Nash. I'm a cop. Yeah, I know. You know? Yeah, your name's Freddie something. Frankie Fischetti introduced us about five months ago. And I love that he goes, shit, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> like in this moment, you should be remembering like who, who you meet. Um, and we I have a, yet another question. This is from Ryan Lieb, who says, my favorite scene in Reservoir Dogs is, is the interaction between Mr. Orange, Freddie, and Marvin Nash immediately after the infamous ear-cutting scene. The contrast in tone between it and the insanity of the preceding sequence is so disarming. And one of Tarantino's biggest strengths is a writer and director, in my opinion. He says, my question is this. When Freddie says, I'm a cop, and Marvin says, yeah, I know, had Marvin just recognized Freddie at that moment, or did he know that Freddie was the rat the entire time, even when his ear was being cut off? If it's the latter, Marvin Nash is a fucking legend. Yeah. What do you guys think? No doubt about it. I mean, and he knew that this guy, he's clearly seen Mr. Orange. He knows that he's a cop, and he uh, just literally sticks to his guns he's gonna die to keep his mouth shut mm -hmm. right yeah i think i think uh, everyone all the blues for lack of a better term were all shown the picture of mr absolutely yeah so yep. they know who he is so he knows who he is and he keeps his mouth shut about everything because look to even to save his ear he could have given up mr orange and he didn't so yeah he totally knows who he is Yep. So Ryan Lieb, I think we all agree Marvin Nash is a fucking legend. It is. And it makes it even it makes it even more poignant that Mr. Orange didn't even remember that he met him. That makes it even more poignant <laughs> that he was willing to sacrifice for a guy who doesn't even remember him, which makes him even more of a legend. Um, and we're in this shot. It's a split diopter shot, which means that it has a lens with two different focal lengths so that we can have Marvin in the extreme foreground in focus and have Mr. Orange in the background in focus and i love that he says how do i look <laughs> and i love mr orange's response he laughs yeah i don't know what to tell you marvin <laughs> <laughs> and then this is when we hear that there are cops waiting a block away the fuck are they waiting for uh, this fucking guy he slashes my face and he cuts my fucking ear off 
And Mr. Orange's reaction to him complaining is so real, I think, which he goes, fuck you, fuck you, I'm fucking dying here, I'm fucking dying. This is just, in my opinion, as far as pure acting concerns, um, this is just, you know, when he delivers that line of fuck you, I'm fucking dying here, and he's just lying there and he delivers that, I mean, there's no better acting in the entire movie. I mean, mm. it is Tim Roth just being Tim Roth, one of the greatest actors of our of our generation, but never, you know, the breakout movie star. But yeah. think about some of the great actors. I mean, how did they pull this off? You know, they don't. You know, I mean, just the eruption of him in this scene is just freaking haunting. Yeah, It's amazing. And you know what? I, something that we have kind of rolled over and not given the significance to that and and the, which I'll blame me for not doing it is that we've all seen this movie many times and so because we've seen the movie many times some of the twists they don't jump at you as much because you're watching for them the whole time i think i need to go back and talk about seeing this for the first time mm. and the discovery at this moment that mr orange is a fucking cop yep and everything that means about what we have just watched well, right. and everything that means about how what a brilliant screenwriter Tarantino is. Absolutely. To, you know, to drop these little truth bombs step by step through the film so that you're thrust into the uh, roller coaster of this film and every twist and turn that shows up is so cool and at the perfect time. Well, right? and another reason and I'm not going to give it away to John mm -hmm. is he's shot and he's dying. And that leads credence to the fact that he's not a cop. Yes, right. You, know? you buy it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, and you, you have to go through it. Of course, this movie's happening really fast. But then you go like, wait, every decision that Mr. White made now looks completely different because it's like, oh, Mr. White was desperately trying to save the life of the guy who betrayed them. Right. Mr. White is comforting the guy who betrayed them. Mr. White told his name to the guy that betrayed them. Mr. White was ready to throw down with Mr. Blonde even, you know, to protect the guy who betrayed him. Like all of what has been happening is now, oh shit, what is yeah. all, I mean, like the way, and, and it's interesting too, that I think that like, this is a movie that's a lot of ways about loyalty and mm -hmm. the most loyal person is the psychopath. Yeah. And the least loyal person is the cop, you know, he's an undercover cop. I he's would train him. Well, He's loyal. I, mean, he, to, I think he's loyal to his code. He's loyal to the job. Yeah. No, so I agree I would, with that. I would say Mr. White is the least loyal person mm. in this whole thing because by the end, as you just pointed out here, Steve, you look at his actions in a different uh, through a different prism, and at the end, he kills a longtime friend and the son of his longtime friend just to defend this guy he just met on a job. Is that? But is that loyal or is that foolishness? No, so I'm saying I, I think it's a I think it's a disregard for loyalty because the loyalty yeah. should have come first, and trusting Joe's instincts should have come first. That's why I think what I said in the first part. I think he is at a crossroads in his life as a criminal, and that's why he makes the mistakes he makes throughout the whole movie because he's not focused in like he, he's not hungry and on the edge and sharp like he's been on other jobs. He's in a transition place. He loves his that's kid. That's why killing him. Yeah, he, he loves, loves his, his kid. kid. It's like a son to him, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yep. He's, he's letting his, his guard slip. Yeah. He does his job. Tim Roth does his job. Right, exactly. And this is where they hear that the cops are not going to make a move till Joe shows up. Don't pussy out of me now, Martin. 
We're just gonna sit here and bleed. <laughs> Joe Cabot sticks his fucking head through that door. So before we go into the Mr. Orange sequence, which is without a doubt my favorite sequence in the whole movie, mm-hmm. I absolutely love it. Before we go into that, I want to tell you how Tim Roth gets cast. Yeah. So, so first of all, everyone who's auditioning for this movie wanted to be either Mr. Blonde or Mr. Pink. That's the parts that everybody wanted. Tim wanted to be Mr. Orange. Like, that's really what he wanted. Yeah, because he liked the layers. He liked the idea. And because he's a British guy who's going to be playing an American, he liked all of that, you know, acting within acting within acting, which I totally, totally get. And the only problem is he refused to read. He had figured out early (laughs) on that he just wasn't good in the room. And he went, you know, often I, 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 I'll go in, you know, there's a part that I probably will get and then I read for it and I blow it and then I don't get the part. So he just said, I'm better off just not reading. You know, I'm just going to say that. And Kaitel said, no, we can't, you can't cast him without having him read. No, it doesn't work. (laughs) So they go out and have drinks. It's Harvey Kaitel, it's Tim Roth and it's Quentin. And they're having a nice time getting a little drunker. And then Harvey Kaitel goes, Look, I'm just going to say it. If he's not going to read, I don't think we should cast him. But uh, you guys, you young kids, you could keep drinking. I'm going home. So he leaves and they keep drinking and swapping stories and drinking and swapping stories until now. And I think this started as a lunch. Mm. And now it is last call, two in the morning. They're both shit faced. They've been drinking all day. And Tim Roth goes, All right. I can't do the accent, but goes, All right. You know what? I'll read it. I'll read for you now. And Quentin's like, I don't have the script with me. He goes, I'll write down some dialogue. He's like, no, 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 let's go to your apartment. So they go back to Quentin's place, <laughs> pulls out a script, and they read the entire movie with Quentin playing every other part and and Tim Roth playing Mr. Orange. And that is how he gets this part. Wow. Jesus. Yep. Um, and then, so he start now he needs to work on the dialogue. So he started three weeks before uh, working with his dialogue coach. His dialogue coach is the woman in the car that shoots him. Oh, oh, shit. And this brings us to another question from Anthony Palms, who says, <laughs> it seems like Tim Roth's version of American accent in this film has remained one of the least convincing to we Americans ears. Was that accent simply an actor's flaw, a director who needed to work with what he had on his first film? Or do you think there's something else at play there? I have to say that I... and. Look, you you know I'm a voiceover artist, and I'm always big at. I I have to say I don't find his American accent off putting, and I never have. I never have either. It's nope. weird. Yeah, I never have. Like you know, Benedict Cumberbatch in Doctor Strange. That's a terrible American accent. This not so much. I didn't have an issue with that. So I find there's that an awesome. odd quality to his voice, but yeah. I just went. That's how this guy talks. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. So. Let's enter the world of Mr. Orange. Uh, We're at a diner and we meet Randy Brooks, who plays Detective Holloway. I think he is another actor like Kurt Baltz, who is fantastic in this movie Mm. and doesn't have a huge career after this. And and what's so interesting about this is like, so where we start, he comes in and says he's on the job. Um, And so we start kind of middle time right after he gets on the job. And then we're going to go back further into the past. And he talks about meeting Joe and he talks about, you know, all the names and the colors and Mr. White. Two of you talk a little about what brewers, Milwaukee brewers. Yeah. Apparently they, they, they won the night before he made a killing off him. 
This is sweet, man, because if this Crook's a uh, Brewers fan, his ass has got to be from Wisconsin. Mm, and they talk about how that's they're going to nail him, which is exactly what Mr. Pink said. And there is, in fact, a deleted scene of Tim Roth looking through mugshots and finding a mugshot of Harvey Keitel. Yeah. Which I'm really glad is not in the movie. Yeah. And then we hear this thing about Long Beach Max refer- referral. And he says he's uh, he's not. And he says that it worked, and he says, do right by him. He's a good guy. I wouldn't be inside if it wasn't for him. No, no, no. Long Beach Mike is not your fucking amigo, man. Long Beach Mike is a fucking scumbag. He's selling out his amigos. <laughs> Which I think is is great, because it's a window into the fact that Mr. Orange is a little soft-hearted himself. So you can understand why him and Mr. White create a bond or a connection. That and also lending credibility to, you know, you know that this Randy guy is a former, not, you know, he's an undercover guy. Yeah. Undercover dude. And he is teaching him the ropes. And this is, this is what I love so much about this movie is I had never seen a scene like this before. Mm. Uh, An education process, you know? Well, and I think it's, it's again, this goes into these issues of loyalty. When someone is nice to you and helps you out, your instinct is to be loyal back to that person. Mm-hmm. And right. the detective is saying, no, that's no. not what this is. Right. And then he says, use the commode story. And there's a smile. And again, this is a perfect, Quentin Tarantino's understanding of film and how it works is so strong in this first movie and because this is like, and this whole rest of the, this whole sequence, you have to understand, I think it's because I'm an editor, is like understanding how editing works. Like what is really happening is that the cut and the ideas and the dialogue is going to pull you across these jumps in time, these jumps in reality. And I hadn't thought about it until working on, uh, set, you know, getting ready for this podcast, but this was hugely influential to me, this sequence. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things in the assistance which is a voiceover movie and that goes in and out of reality that I was totally referencing this. I didn't know, I didn't think about it at the time, but thinking about it now, it's like, I don't think I would do those sequences in the assistance without this sequence in Reservoir Dogs. So we cut to a rooftop and we answer the thing that got said. We started with use the commode story and we go to the commode story, which dialogue wise, those lines work next to each other, which is what pulls us across the cut is use the commode story. What's a commode story? Hmm. Look, man, undercover cops got to be Marlon Brando, right? To do this job, you got to be a great actor. You got to be naturalistic. You got to be naturalistic as hell. Because right? if you ain't a great actor, you're a bad actor. And bad acting is bullshit this job. So first of all, it's great speech. Second of all, it always made me think of when I was in my first freshman high school theater class, acting class, the first thing the old school teacher used, made us do, which by the way, this was at Redwood High School, he was Robin Williams's drama teacher when Robin was there, because Robin Williams went to my high school. So Robin Williams did this assignment too, which I just think is cool. And the assignment was to do Speak the Speech I Pray You from Hamlet. Mm-hmm. And that is all about talking to your actors and what is the job of the actor. And I always thought this scene is, this is Speak the Speech. This is saying you got to make it yours and real. What I didn't know is that when Harvey Keitel read the script and when they were talking about this scene, Harvey Keitel gave Quentin Tarantino speak the speech I pray you from Hamlet to read. Yeah. They taught us that in, we couldn't graduate from our Shakespeare class in London when I went in 98 without delivering that speech believably, you know, because it's such a beautiful commentary about 
acting and it is to throw it all away and be just realistic and live moment to moment life within the scene. It, and it is the hardest thing in the world. Yes. You know, 100%. That's why I don't do it anymore. I can't, I, can't, I could never be that natural, you know, like a better voiceover, but not on camera. I, of course, you know, I disagree with you. That's why I never auditioned for David McKenna for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> so he hands him this script. He goes, what is this? That's an amusing anecdote about a drug deal. What? Something funny that happened to you while you're doing a fucking job, man. And I love uh, Freddie's, because this is really Freddie at this point, reaction like, I got to memorize all this? There's over four <laughs> fucking pages here. Just think about it like it's a, a joke, all right? You memorize what's important, the rest you make your own, all right? You can tell a joke, can't you? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and then this is where, this is, it's like, this is the, this is speak the speech. Mm-hmm. Now, the things you got to remember are the details. It's the details that sell your story. And this particular story takes place in a men's room. So you got to know all the details about the men's room. You got to know if they got paper towels or a blower to dry your hands with. You got to know if the stalls ain't got no doors or not, man. I hate when you go into a Having gone into a men's room to do some business and then no doors on the stalls yeah. when you have serious business to do. Right. That's, that's <laughs> problem. No way. You got to know if they got liquid soap or that pink granulated powdered shit they used to use in high school, remember? <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, how great is that? Yeah. Well, tell me what, what, what is great about that, David, because I, I, I wonder if you'll, you'll say the same thing. I'm just, you know, I mean, it's just the attention to detail and the little stuff that makes everything great. You know, like all my, you know, I've had some good movies and I've had some bad movies and my good movies, usually the director hits about 60 to 70% of the little stuff. The bad directors hit 20% of the little stuff and it makes the difference between a good movie and a bad movie. Let me give you another example. I did a bad movie called, I wrote a movie called Jello Shots. It turned into a nightmare production called Body Shots. And the opening scene is the guy's taking a piss and he hits, you know, the seat. And, um, you know, like we always do in the middle of the night, we're hitting the seat over and over, <laughs> taking a piss, we're hung over as shit. And he, the director had him not even lifting up the, just pissing on the lid. And being all cautious about him pissing on the lid, whereas he's hung over, he shouldn't give two shits. And right when I saw that in the opening scene, I go, this movie is going to fucking suck. (laughs) And it did because he misses the little shit. And just, and when you're talking about pink granular versus the soap, we've been there. And we know, and we hate that pink granular shit. <laughs> well, what I, what I love about it is that is that he, we have this scene where he's telling this character, you need to imagine all the details. The thing about the, the pink granulated powder shit you used to use in high school is that that made me imagine that detail. Because, and imagine, not just imagine it with my eyes, but I could feel it on my fingers from the description. Yeah. So he's he's making me do the thing that he's asking Freddie to do. Right. Which is imagine that space. He says, you got to know if they got hot water or not. If it stinks, if some nasty, low life, scum ridden motherfucker, man, sprayed diarrhea all over one of the bowls. (laughs) So true. You got to know every detail there is to know about this commode. So what you got to do is 
take all them details, man, and make them your own. This is a master class for being an undercover cop, you know, and it's just and being an actor and being yeah. an actor. Number one, man. I mean, that's I don't know when you get handed a monologue in a play, the amount of times that you spend saying the monologue over and over again while you're going to the bathroom, while you're washing dishes, while you're playing video games, while you're watching TV, it just it consumes you because you want to nail it so badly. And so the different places where he is saying this monologue as he gets better and better at it, I think it's just a brilliant thing to out of nowhere, right before the culmination of this movie. Let me show let me give you a master class in acting for about five right. to eight minutes. Right. It's genius. It's great structure. It's a great spot yeah. for it, you know. Well, and it's after a dude's ear got, you know, cut off and he was about to be lit on fire and Mr. Blonde got killed. It's like, and we learned that he's a cop. And now we're doing this digression. And he says, and this is, again, this is just key to talking to an actor. While you're doing that, you got to remember that this story is about you and how you perceive the events that went down. The only way to do that, my brother, keep saying it, saying it, saying it, saying it, and saying it. This had never been done before, guys. Mm. You know, this structure had never been done before. We had never seen this before. We'd seen certain sort of different structures. Sophie's Choice or, you know, I mean, you can go back to, you know, Sophie's Choice is a very unique structure. Mm. Um, But nothing like this where you're kind of all over the board. And that's what defines this, man. And what I love about this is there's a progression of, of acting because now we go to rehearsal. And I, John, same, I've, I've been in that room saying that monologue over and over and over again. He's in his apartment where there's like comic book stuff on the walls. This, by the way, is this was shot on the second floor of the mortuary warehouse. So he, they're right upstairs now. This was during the Los Angeles marijuana drive, 1986. I still had a connection, which was insane because couldn't get any weed any fucking where then. Tim Roth does a great job of not speaking in a good rhythm of having it all stilted and forced. I had a connection with this hippie chick up in Santa Cruz and all my friends knew it. They give me a call and they say, hey, Freddie. <laughs> it's a great little beat of him. It is. <laughs> and he's talking through it. I love that he's, I love that Tarantino chooses, again, this, there's so much confidence in his filmmaking. I would never have had the courage to do this, particularly on my first film. Camera is stationary. He's walking in and out of frame. So he's off camera for long periods of time yeah. where we're just hearing his voice. Yep. And what he's telling about is how every time he got weed, he had these other people who wanted to get weed from him. And this is sort of the story of how he became a drug dealer. And then we cut from there to later. And he's standing in front of a graffiti wall. And the detective is now sitting in front of him watching it. And we have gone, for me, from rehearsal to literally a stage. He is on a stage. Yep. And his acting has advanced from what I will call, you know, bad rehearsal acting to competent stage acting. You know what I mean? He's acting like an actor would act the scene. But then that got to be a pain in the ass. People call me on the phone all the fucking time. I couldn't even run a fucking tape without six fucking phone calls interrupting me. What, what do you feel about what's happening with his performance, John? Like, how has it changed? This is also the gene. You know how some, like... um Meryl Streep talked about playing Florence Foster Jenkins. And one of the hardest things, because she's a good singer, Meryl Streep, one of the hardest things to do was to play her being off pitch and off tune, right? Mm. And it is hard 
because your temptation, because you've been trained, uh, is to sing on pitch and on to so to alter that is difficult. For Tim Roth as an actor, and I think for any actor, to play bad acting is really tough. Uh, and it's because if you're good at it, like Tim is, as David has pointed out earlier, yeah. it's tough to play like you're not good at what you're doing and you're still trying to figure it out and play the levels until you're growing into the monologue. And then by the end, when he's delivering it there in front of the graffiti thing, he is so natural, so much so natural, so in the zone of being this character and being this person, uh, not only as an actor, but as an undercover guy, you're just so dialed in and you automatically go back and remember the times he just did it a few seconds ago and you see the difference in how he was off base in those attempts earlier and he is completely dialed in here. What I find so interesting is is it's not the leap from the, I don't know my lines, I'm just rehearsing in my apartment, to the scene on what I will call on the stage. It's the next leap that's really interesting. Because there's yeah. nothing that I would say is bad about no. the way he's doing it right now. But it isn't full, he is not fully real yet. Yeah, he is. He is giving a good performance of this character, but it isn't him yet. You know, it's like a dress rehearsal. Yeah. And then yeah. and then when he's in costume in the next one. Right. Yeah. Then these rinketing potheads come by. They're my friends and everything. But still, you know, I think that is that wasn't in the original script. That's what I think. I think that is something that he has sort of worked out. And now we cut to in the bar and he's giving the same speech. And again, this is this understanding of editing because the. The language, the story he's telling is in continuity. We totally accept the leaps from location to location and situation to situation. It just pulls you through. It's the same way music can pull you through a difficult cut, cut sometimes. And he's with Nice Guy Eddie, Joe, and Mr. White. She had a brick of weed she was selling. She didn't want to go to the buy alone. The brother usually goes with her, but he's in county unexpectedly. What for? His traffic tickets gone warm. They stopped him for something, found Warren's on him the county. Here's my question about this moment. Did he expect them to ask that question? No. Hmm. So did he just improvise that answer? Yes. Yes. That's what I think too. Yeah. And I, and I think it's so good because you can see it, his performance isn't quite as good as it was on the other stuff, hmm. but that he pulled it off, you know? Now she doesn't want to walk around alone with all that weed. I don't want to do this. I'm very bad feeling about it. She keeps asking, keeps asking, keeps asking. Finally, I said, okay, because I'm sick of hearing it. Here we have another story with a bad feeling. Never go in if you're not 100%. Mm. Buscemi, Mr. Pinks has already said that. Joe is going to say that later. Uh, this is obviously a big theme in the thing. Now, picking the guy up at the train station. Wait a minute. You go to the train station to pick up the buyer, the weed on you? And again, I think he has to improvise his answer to this. A guy needed to right away. Don't ask me why. Anyway, we get to the train station. And we're waiting for the guy. Now I'm carrying the weed around in one of those little carry-on bags. I gotta take a piss. So I tell a connection, I'll be right back. I'm going to the boys' room. And then this is where this sequence goes off the charts for me, which is that he we cut to him walking in to the men's room. The men's room that has never existed. Hmm. This is not a real place. This does not exist. This is because the challenge at the beginning of the sequence was you got to make this place so real that it feels like you've been there. And now we see that he's achieved that, you know, yeah. he has essentially constructed this whole thing in his mind. That's amazing it is. in terms of what's happening in this film. It is. 
and that dog <laughs> yeah well and the, the the whole sound design changes as he walks into the space it's very empty it's very uh the pacing has changed so i walk into the men's room and who's standing there four <laughs> los angeles county sheriffs and a german shepherd <laughs> and yes that dog the slow motion dog it's barking so cute <laughs> they're waiting for you no it's just a bunch of cops hanging out in the men's room talking I walked through the door, they all stopped what they were talking about, and they looked at me. And the dog is barking in close-up. He's barking at me. I mean, it's obvious. He's barking at me. And now we're going to go to an even further level of unreality. So here's how this came about. Initially, this was all going to be in voiceover. Hmm. And Tarantino was just wanted to do the circular shot around him, but we would be hearing... Mr. Orange's story in voiceover as he's telling it at the bar. But in order to get the timing right, and man, I wish I had known this before I made uh, a couple of my films, <laughs> that they went, well, let's have Tim Roth say this speech while we practice our camera move so we know that the camera move takes exactly the right amount of time that he uses to say the speech. So they're just rehearsing, and he's saying the speech, and Quentin is watching this and goes, something is happening here. This was not planned out. This is something they figured out on the day to have him actually give the speech, which makes no sense. I mean, it's co we're in a completely surreal space at this point. And so they do this camera move moving around him as he's talking directly to the cops and the dog about telling the story of what's happening. Hmm. How do you two feel about this moment in the film? I think it's just absolutely brilliant. It makes the whole sort of sequence with Mr. Orange because it is an imaginary scene and you said yeah. it yourself, it's completely made up. So why, when you have this made up location, you know, and get to see the bathroom, get to see the commode. So are you saying that he, he was not going to shoot it in the commode that he just came up with that. And he realized that he was never going to have him say the actual lines of the story in inside the to the cops and all that. It's yep. a, it's a really great choice because it's not real. And if it's not real, then the cops can't react to it properly. Right. The, the cop is telling the story, buddy, I'm going to shoot you in the face. <laughs> and, um, you know, they're telling, they're telling, they're doing their own thing. Oh yeah. No, it, it, the whole thing, um, it makes the tangent placed at this time worth it. That whole thing, because as you said, Steve, we've been watching him practice and practice and practice, and he came close on the graffiti wall, and now he's in it, right? Yep. And by having him deliver it so honestly, now we can go along with him because he's delivering it so truthfully into the bathroom with him. And Tarantino never lets you forget that this is, in essence, a made-up dream sequence, so to speak. Right. This is a story that never happened. By having the cops in slow motion, hearing the, him pushing the sound of the dryer, um, and then he, the cop, as you pointed out, David, telling the story, you are now, because he is telling the story so believably, you are now buying everything just like the people sitting at the table are of this right. whole scenario, and you are now 100% connected to, it's the final piece, connected to Mr. Orange before the finale comes. You know, we don't get a Mr. Pink background or mr blue or mr brown it's just these other characters that get these little tangents or not flashbacks as tarantino pointed out but 
um, you know, other parts of them or tone out of sequence stories told out of sequence. And it's because these are the characters that are super important in the movie. So he says, while looking directly at the cops in the commode, he says, Every nerve in me, all my senses, blood in my veins, everything I have is screaming, take off, man. Just bail, just get the fuck out of there. <laughs> so great. The moving of the camera below to where he's, I mean, he's the spotlight, it's just genius. Panic hits me like a bucket of water. First there's a shock of it, bam, right in the face. I'm just standing there drenched in panic and all these sheriffs looking at me and they know, man, they can smell it. Sure as that fucking dog can, they can smell it on me. That speech is so intense mm. and it's just, and then what I love is that you have this incredible build as the camera circles around him and then the dog barks and we expect, we don't know where the story's gonna go. I mean, it seems like he's about to get arrested. And the cop goes, shut up. And he just goes back to his story. Right. At which moment he realized that, oh, he's going to get away with it. And now, first it was a story just being told. And it was a story being told on stage. Then it was a story being told to people in a bar. Then there's this very surreal thing where he is telling his story while in the actual space. Mm. And now we no longer have voiceover. The voiceover is gone. And we are just in this world that never happened. And what's even more interesting to me is it's not just that he had to learn how to come up with a story that never happened and make it his own. But now within his story is another character who is telling a story, a joke, mm -hmm. his own version of the commode story. And that that means that Mr. Orange had to not just fully realize who he is. He had to fully realize this other character, which is this cop who never existed, telling the story in this commode that never was there. Exactly. Yeah. That's just a wild shit that's going on. And I love, too, that the cop, how how would you rate his ability to tell jokes and tell a story? The guy with the mustache? The guy with the mustache. He's 100% believable. 10. Yeah, 10. Yeah, exactly. So because, you know, well, go ahead. we're more aware of, you know, we're seeing the body camera footage. We're seeing these cops in action in certain moments, certain situations. So that story takes on even more resonance now in 2023 than I think it did even back in 1992. So you're, you're, you can absolutely visualize what this cop is actually talking about because of what we've been able to see over the late, these last few years, you could see him telling someone as they're slowly reaching and nodding their head to go to the glove compartment. You could slow, you could totally see him going asshole, you know, put your hands on the thing. So, yeah. What, what, what I actually, I agree with all of that. What I actually mean is this cop's ability to tell jokes. I actually think he, he isn't the perfect teller of the story. I think the story is perfect, but like his, his tones of like. And I scream at him. I go, asshole, I'm going to fucking blow you away right now. Put your hands on the dash. Yeah. It's like, it's awkward in the way that he speaks tonally. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like I like that Freddie populated his story with a cop telling a story in an awkwardy kind of way. Mm, yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Right. Like, like that, that's how realistic he has made this whole thing. And we're listening to tell this story, which is also interesting, by the way, that this movie is going to end with a standoff where people are saying, put the gun away or I'm going to blow you away. Right. That's what this cop is talking about in, in this story. Mm. And I love once Mr. Orange realizes he's going to be okay. His, he almost pushes it, you know, we walks slowly over to the sink. Oh, I love this part. I love this part. 
and we we're here and they're watching him and we see for instance that the sink is one of those faucets where you can only hold it down with one hand so you have to wash your hands one hand at a time which to me is like the pink granulated soap stuff that you used in high school it's that detail and then the choice of the way with the one finger in slow motion he pushes <laughs> that button yeah. of the blow dryer and slowly dries his hands as the cop and the dog in slow motion watch him do it. Yeah. Is awesome. Yes. <laughs> and they cut, they do that one cut to the dog, they cut to all the cops and they cut to the dog again barking. It's the payoff shot, you know? It's so funny. Well, and do you think, as he told the story, did he tell the story like, and then I slowly walked. Did he tell them about the one faucet? Did he tell them I used one finger to push the button of the blow dryer? No, 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 no. I don't think he told them any of those things. No. Right. He's just in it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because what is this really about? This is actually about how did the undercover cop convince the bad guys of this reality? Well, what just happened was he didn't convince the bad guys of the reality. He convinced the audience, us, that this was real. Right. That I believe that that commode story happened because I just watched it happen. Yeah. It's super real in my mind, so it's easy to go that he convinced the bad guys. You know how to handle that situation. Just shoot your pants and dive in and swim. And then, and then we have one more little beat where he's talking to the detective and they ask who's, you know, about Joe. And he says... You remember Fantastic Four? Oh, yeah, with that uh, invisible bitch and uh, flame on and shit. That invisible bitch and flame on and shit is a great <laughs> description of the Fantastic Four. The thing, motherfucker, looks just like the thing. Yeah, <laughs> right. As crazy as it is, I think that Reservoir Dogs, gentlemen, is going to have to be a three-parter because we have revealed that he is an undercover cop, but we still have a long journey to go. We go where the story takes us. We go where the guest takes us. And so if we've gone into a three a third part, that's because this is an incredible film to break down and analyze and deconstruct all these years later. So hell yeah, let's wind into a third part. And of, and of course, part of what's making this conversation so exciting is our incredible guest, David McKenna. Thank you again for coming on and, and thank you for indulging us with a, with a three-parter on Reservoir Dogs. Oh, it's it's the best. It's worth it. My, my pleasure. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, John. I'll see you next week. And of course, we'd love to hear what you think about this second part of Reservoir Dogs. You can visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for the Cinephiles. It's Cine underscore Files on Twitter, Cinephiles Podcast on Instagram. And you can subscribe to the show at all the usual places. Apple Podcasts is, of course, where you should leave your reviews. You could leave comments on YouTube, but you could also be on Spotify or Stitcher or Overcast or any of those places. If you want to buy or stream Reservoir Dogs along with every other movie we've ever reviewed, they're all on Cinephiles.net. And you could support the show at Patreon patreon.com slash the cinephiles which i'll let you in on a little secret we just recorded not one not two not three not four but five really fun cinephile shorts and you can only listen to them there and if you want to reach me it's sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram and enterprise incidents for all your star trek needs john where would people find you uh, you can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch, and my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says. All the movies are coming back, ladies and gentlemen. So a lot of reviews and uh, conversations about that stuff is happening there. So head on over there to subscribe as well. Uh, don't forget our YouTube channel for sure. The Cinephiles, uh, uh, definitely uh, subscribe to that as well. And my other podcasts, 
uh, the Geek Buddies and the Hot Mike as the top 10 has uh, gone away and will be going away. So, uh, but uh, there you go. That's my life. I think this is a good time for you to start at episode one of the top 10 and do a complete re-listen. That's what I think you should be doing right now. Uh, And of course, we will be back next week for the conclusion of Reservoir Dogs with our special guest, David McKenna, right here on The Cinephiles.